0: Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a look under the covers, or rather the cover slip, exploring groundbreaking recent discoveries about the secret sex lives of cancer cells and what it means for our understanding of tumour growth, evolution and treatment. Sometime around 2009, Andre Marusic was staring down the microscope in the lab at Dana Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, checking in on his latest experiment aimed at understanding how cancerous and healthy cells interact together in tumors. When he made a provocative discovery, cancer cells were having sex. The experimental setup was straightforward, if sophisticated. First, mix different populations of cells together, label each one with different coloured fluorescent tags – red for the cancer cells, green for the healthy ones – and then watch as they go about their daily lives. Slowly, he scanned across the plastic dish, monitoring the cells as they passed under the lens – red, green, green, red, red, green, then… orange? His first reaction was to ignore it and move on. Strange things can happen in the world of lab-grown cells, and this orange blob was more than likely to be an irrelevant artefact. But still he kept coming across unusually large orange cells, carrying both fluorescent markers. His first thought was that two cells must have fused together to create some kind of hybrid. So he started looking more closely for evidence of cell fusions. Were the orange cells larger than the others? Did they have more than the regular amount of DNA? The more he looked, the more he found evidence of cancer cells fusing with healthy cells or with each other. Not many, but enough to make him think there was something weird going on. When he started asking around, colleagues told him they'd seen something similar, but it didn't mean anything. I first heard of Marisic's discovery while researching my latest book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life. During those early stages of the writing process, I would occasionally hear hints of something so transgressively bizarre that it made my head spin. Cancer cells were having sex. Cell fusions happen all the time in the body and in the lab. For years, biologists have studied their occurrence during the formation of osteoclasts, large cells that break down and remodel bone tissues, in the placenta in early pregnancy, or during infection with certain viruses like HIV. Spotting this process occurring in the unusual environment of a laboratory dish isn't so strange. Unusually large cells have also been observed in cancer for more than 150 years, going back to the early German pathologist Rudolf Virchow who diligently sketched the curious bodies provided with large nuclei and nucleoli which are described as the specific polymorphous cells of cancer that he noticed within a tumour. Taking this idea further, In 1911, his fellow countryman Otto Eichel proposed that cancer might spread through the body through tumour cells fusing with immune cells. Even though Eichel was wrong in the details, his concept wasn't far off. Cancer cells have also been caught completely engulfing healthy cells, a phenomenon known as empiripolesis. And fusions between cancer and immune cells have been found in several tumour types, including pancreatic cancer and melanoma. However, these fusions were thought to be terminal. The resulting freakish hybrid cells were believed to be unable to grow and destined to die. While plenty of oncology researchers, staring at tumour sections through their microscopes, saw these Frankenstein-fused cancer cells through the years – most of them were not interested. They simply adjusted their scopes and turned their focus elsewhere. Marisic couldn't move on. He was stuck wondering why these cell fusions kept occurring and what role they could be playing in the cancer process. In 2015, he left Dana-Farber to set up his own lab at the Moffitt Cancer Centre in Tampa, Florida hiring a young Ukrainian researcher, Daria Miroshnichenko, to start working on the problem. One of the first challenges was developing a way to accurately detect and measure the extent of cell fusion events. Scanning through millions of cells with a microscope was too time-consuming and inaccurate while automated cell sorting or DNA sequencing techniques actively discarded ambiguous or mixed data resulting from exactly the kind of cell fusion events Marisik and Miroshnichenko were looking for. They were using a new technique called image-based cytometry, which whizzes thousands of cells past a tiny camera, snapping a photo of each one as it goes. Miroshinchenko found a small but significant proportion of cell fusions after growing different types of cancer cells together with tumour-associated fibroblast cells for three days. One thing they noticed right away was that some of the fused cells were far more active than might have been expected. While many couldn't divide, a small number of fused cells were able to proliferate, both in the lab and when transplanted into animals. In some cases, the cell fusions divided faster and their offspring became more invasive than the original cancer cells from which they came, suggesting that they could be playing a role in the development of aggressive tumours in real-life situations. The fruits of many of these cell fusions were bulky, swollen cells known as polyploids, which have twice the regular amount of DNA. But curiously, Maroshnichenko discovered that some of them had dropped back down to the normal amount of DNA after dividing. When she and her colleagues looked closely at the cell's genomes, they found evidence of so-called parasexual recombination, where the fused cells were swapping bits of DNA around before dividing, creating new daughter cells with genetic properties that were a mix of mum and dad. Was this, at long last, the smoking-gun hard evidence of cancer cell sex? If so, it brought with it major implications for our understanding of how tumours evolve within the body and become resistant to therapy. This would be huge if true. Our current model of how cancers pick up mutations and evolve within the body relies on the assumption that cancer cells reproduce asexually, without the ability to swap genetic tips and tricks between themselves. Yet, beyond a handful of intriguing but low-profile papers, there's been little hard evidence for these cellular hookups. As Marisic explains, most techniques for studying cancer cells, such as DNA sequencing or flow cytometry, actively discard any evidence of cell fusions as being errors or artifacts. Therefore, cell fusion doesn't exist. This reflects a lack of understanding in how these techniques work, he argues. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, and there's no way that the sequencing pipeline can detect cell fusions, as it's built into the algorithm to reject them. At long last, are advances in technology finally allowing researchers to catch cancer cells in the act? The entire field of cancer research and treatment is built on the idea that tumour cells can only reproduce by splitting in two. This means that any traits arising in a cancer cell due to a new genetic mutation, such as the ability to migrate around the body, invade new tissues, or resist the effect of treatment, must be restricted to that one lineage of cancer cells. But if it's possible for cancer cells to fuse together, pooling their genetic assets and then dividing to create even more deadly offspring then this overturns what we think we know about how tumours grow and evolve within the body. Parasexual recombination doesn't introduce new mutations into a cell's DNA. Instead, it allows cells with different mutations to recombine and reshuffle their respective genetic cards to create new combinations. This fits neatly with the emerging view of cancer as a Darwinian evolutionary process, with tumour cells diversifying and picking up new genetic changes that may enable them to better survive within the environment of the body. This ability to evolve becomes even more important when the environments in which the cancer cells find themselves change. For example, with the application of treatments like chemotherapy or radiotherapy, or under conditions of reduced oxygen or nutrients, which are often found within tumours. Teaming up with computational biologist Daniel Basanta at The Moffat, Miroshnychenko and Marisik created a mathematical model to show that this parasexual activity was capable of generating the kinds of extreme genetic diversity seen in advanced metastatic cancers which has profound implications on the evolutionary capabilities of the cells. When cancer cells can have sex, then you can generate more diversity and create new combinations of mutations that previously existed in separate lineages, Marisik says. So in order to understand cancer evolution and resistance to therapy, you have to account for the possibility that there is at least some occurrence of cell fusions. Figuring out the frequency and significance of these cell fusions will be important, Marisic explains, because if they tend to occur between cells that are very similar to each other, then we can probably ignore it. On the other hand, in triple negative breast cancers... Genetic heterogeneity is a defining feature. So you're more likely to have a fusion between genetically dissimilar cells that would have a much larger evolutionary impact. The idea that cancer cell fusions might be playing an important role in the emergence of resistance to treatment was neatly demonstrated in recent work by Kenneth Pienta and Sarah Armand at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore which also started from a curious observation down a microscope. While looking at prostate cancer cells growing in the lab, Armand would occasionally spot large polyploid cells with at least double the normal amount of DNA. That's not necessarily unusual. Cancer cells can get stuck at the point where they've copied their DNA, but are unable to split into two new cells. So they're normally overlooked and ignored by researchers. Yet, like Marisic, Armand and Pienta felt like there must be something more to these mysterious giants. To investigate further, they turned to a device nicknamed the Evolution Accelerator, a hexagonal microfluidic chip no bigger than a fingernail, which was originally designed as a way of studying the emergence of antibiotic resistance in bacterial cells. Similar to the arena in The Hunger Games, the Evolution Accelerator is a miniature landscape in which cancer cells compete with each other, created from tiny chambers linked by tunnels that are small enough for regular cancer cells to move through, but not the larger polyploid cells. Unlike cells growing in a flat, plastic Petri dish, which all experience the same conditions – The structure of the Evolution Accelerator meant that Armand and her colleagues could set up different zones across the chip, ranging from high concentrations of the common prostate cancer drug docetaxel on one side to low levels on the other. Then they added drug-sensitive prostate cancer cells into the arena and watched what happened. Using time-lapse microscopy, the researchers followed the cells over several weeks as they explored their silicon setting. Strikingly, more and more giant polyploid cells quickly began to appear, especially in the areas with the highest levels of docetaxel, suggesting they had evolved resistance to the treatment. Looking more closely at the footage... Armand was stunned to see that many of these polyploid cells were being created through cell fusions, rather than failures of cell division, as might be expected. And she was even more shocked as she watched these giant cells split back into smaller daughter cells, all of which were now also resistant to the drug. It was a surprise observation, but we paid attention to it, Armand says. As a trained cell biologist, realising the importance of such a critical cell type that we're usually taught to ignore for so long was frankly startling. The results from Marusic and Armen's teams are an important addition to the steadily growing pile of evidence to support the importance of fusion and polyploid cells in cancer for generating evolutionary diversity and resistance to treatment. Although it's technically much harder to spot parasexual cancer cell antics in real-life tumours, Armand is convinced that the more we look, the more we will find. If you know what to look for, you can find them, Armand explains. Once you're aware that they're there, you can just look at images of tumours, and they're present. Once you see what these cells and their progeny are able to do, it really clarifies that this is the cell state we need to understand and target if we are to have any hope of eliminating cancer. Her own moment of clarity came while watching a movie of the Evolution Accelerator in action, a cell after cancer cell mated, split and acquired resistance in real time. I've seen it hundreds of times, she says. And I still get goosebumps, because it's that terrifying. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at Genetics And while you're at it, why not tell a friend? so more people can discover and enjoy the show. That previous story was written by me and first published in the online science magazine, Neo Life. If you'd like to read it in full, just follow the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. And if you're a fan of fascinating and thought-provoking science writing about biology and technology, and especially the fusion of both, then do head over to neo.life to explore all their other stories. Our second tale today also comes from one of the other fascinating sex-related stories I uncovered while researching my book, Rebel Cell. Now, it's obvious that there are differences in anatomy between humans that affect our chances of getting certain types of cancer. If you're someone with a cervix, you can get cervical cancer, whatever your gender identity. If you don't, then you can't. The same goes for ovaries, wombs, testicles and prostate glands. And although men have a greater risk of cancer overall, there are discrepancies in the incidence of cancers affecting both sexes. For example, breast cancer is overwhelmingly a female disease, with around 55,000 women diagnosed every year in the UK, compared with around 350 men. Esophageal cancer is twice as common in males than in females. Now, while some of this may be down to hormones or health habits, such as smoking, diet and drinking alcohol, it's not enough to explain all the differences. It's increasingly becoming clear that another reason could be the sex chromosomes themselves. Genetically speaking, people who have two X chromosomes are female, while those with an X and a Y are male. The Y has a tenth as many genes as the X, is around a third of the size of the X, and has a habit of accidentally going missing when cells divide. Y chromosomes have been reported missing in the blood cells of older men, especially those who smoke, and this seems to be linked to a higher risk of various types of cancer. But, as Professor Kristin Swanson discovered there are some even more fundamental differences when it comes to the sex of cancer cells and how they behave in the body. A mathematician by training, Kristen Swanson is an unconventional professor of neurosurgery at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona, wielding equations with the same skill and precision that her surgical colleagues wield their scalpels. Over the past 15 years, she's been building a database of thousands of patients with brain tumours, scraping every pixel of data from their MRI scans to build mathematical models that can help to predict how their cancers will grow, and the best option for treatment. For a start, Swanson's data backed up national cancer statistics, showing that men are more likely to develop the most aggressive type of brain tumour, glioblastoma. However, Female glioblastoma patients tend to survive the same disease longer and have cancers that respond better to therapy. Is it genetics? Is it hormones? Or is it something else? While sifting through all this information, Swanson noticed something strange. The cancers from male patients tended to keep on proliferating during treatment while women's tumours tended to stop and wait until conditions had improved. It wasn't 100% true in every case, but the difference between the sexes was clear enough. Swanson became intrigued and started looking for an explanation. To get to the bottom of the mystery, she teamed up with paediatric neuroscientist Joshua Rubin and his team at Washington University School of Medicine in St Louis, Missouri. Together, they took an in-depth look at data from thousands more cancer patients, as well as studying brain tumour cells growing in the lab and transplanted into mice. Fascinatingly, they found distinct patterns of genetic alterations, gene activity and response to treatment in brain tumour cells from XY males compared with XX female ones, publishing their findings in the journal Science Translational Medicine in 2019. This included key differences in genes that were already linked to the chances of survival, like a gene called IDH1. Researchers have previously shown that people whose glioblastomas have alterations or mutations in IDH1 are more likely to have a better outcome from treatment. But Swanson and Rubin found that while female patients with IDH1 mutations in their cancer all had the best survival there was a much wider variety of outcomes for men with IDH1-mutated tumours in all the clusters, suggesting that there's some kind of interaction going on at a genetic level between the mutations in the cancer cells and the underlying genetic sex of the body they arose from. Importantly, the researchers also discovered the same differences in brain tumours from male and female children, proving that they weren't due to the influence of male or female sex hormones found in adults, and strongly suggesting that there's a fundamental disparity in the genetic programming in cancer cells depending on their sex. Swanson suspects these differences go all the way back through the evolutionary history of the disease. Perhaps, she suggests, cancer cells of different sexes might use different strategies to survive in the stressful environments induced by treatment. By way of example, she points to the different ways in which male and female fetuses respond to food shortages in the womb, a phenomenon known as fetal metabolic programming or developmental programming. In famine situations, a normal number of female babies are born, but they're unusually small. But for males, the opposite is true. Fewer boys are born, but they're all a normal size. This makes sense in terms of evolutionary programming. If only a few males of a species are needed to impregnate a much larger number of smaller females, then it's most efficient to allocate biological resources along these lines when times are tight. In a cancer, the equivalent of a famine would be a stress such as radiotherapy, chemotherapy, or the restricted, messed-up blood flow that's often found in tumours. And therefore, according to Swanson and Rubin's data, the pattern of male cancer cells growing big and strong versus slow and steady female cells in response to treatment seems to be recapitulating this evolutionary strategy right down on a cellular level. The idea that cancer cells might be acting out a deeper evolutionary programme depending on the sex of their host is fascinating, if more than a little controversial. The discovery has big implications for personalised approaches to treating brain tumours. Not only should oncologists take the presence of particular genetic mutations into account when deciding on a treatment, but they should consider the underlying genetic sex of their patient too. It's also intriguing to wonder whether or not the same pattern plays out in other types of tumour, especially given that cancer drugs are predominantly tested in male animals. One further question raised by these findings is what happens with brain tumours in people whose gender doesn't match their birth sex, particularly those taking cross-sex hormone therapy? Do their cancer cells adhere to the underlying genetic programme encoded in their sex chromosomes? Or are there other biological and hormonal factors that come into play? There are, fortunately, very few of these cases around, but Swanson is now doing her best to recruit trans patients to see how their brain tumours behave and whether they map back onto the typical pattern for one sex or the other. Since their first discovery in brain tumours, Swanson and her team have gone on to dig deeper into the role of sex differences in health and disease. Their latest review pulls together a huge amount of research, showing that there are differences in the immune system, metabolism and development between males and females, as well as differences in a range of illnesses, including cancer. And, of course, we also have to go beyond biological sex to consider the impact of gender on health and healthcare, especially where there are inequalities and discrimination that lead to poorer outcomes for some people compared to others. But, as highlighted by the discovery that we can't separate the behaviour of tumour cells from the underlying genetic sex of the person they arose in, it's important to remember that cancer is still part of the body. There's a common misconception that cancers are somehow other, alien beings that are growing inside us, rather than the product of our own tissues. But they're still cells, however messed up they may be, and they're still going to do the kind of things that cells do. So we owe it to everyone, whatever their sex or gender, to understand more about how these rogue cells behave in every body and how best to treat them to make cancer care better for all. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at exosomes, tiny packets of biological information circulating around the body. That were once thought to be cellular junk, but are now proving to be a fascinating new frontier in medicine. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else, go to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, I believe, and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me Katani. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mail, and audio production is by Sally LePage.